Hey, you're listening to Sean of the South, and I'm your host, Sean Dietrich. We are coming to you live in the podcast airwaves and the radios all over the nation, and it truly is a privilege. This music you're fixing to hear behind me tonight is the Wildmans, everybody. The Wildmans. tonight, a little bit of our mail sent to us from listeners all over the nation who could think of nothing better than to grace their day with a little bit of pen and paper, write us a note about what's going on in their life. Derek Fish from Gloucester, Maine. Sean, I don't know how I found your broadcast, but I listen every week when I take my girl to dance class an hour drive away from where I live. 
We both listened and my daughter saw your picture last night on the internet and she said, oh my God, he's so old. You gotta love kids. You just got to get used to their snarky little comments. Anyhow, Sean, thanks for the show. Dear Derek, tell your daughter she has made my day. I can think of no higher ambition in my life than to be an old man. Shauna Peters, Montgomery, Alabama. Sean, you won't believe what happened to me last week. You won't believe it. I found a cat without eyes. He was wandering through the woods behind my house, stalking something kind of low to the ground. And I don't even know how I found him because he kind of blended in with the underbrush. But I could tell something was off because he kept running into trees and things. So I went into the woods and I picked him up and he clawed me real bad. But I could see something was wrong with his face. His eyes were shut tight. I have no idea where he came from. I have no idea who owned him. But he's been with me all week, and I've just named him Gary after the pet snail on SpongeBob SquarePants. My kids really love that show. He's the sweetest cat I've ever had, and I've had my share of cats. He gets in my lap for no reason. I think he just needed me, and I know I needed him. Gregory Store, Abilene, Kansas. Sean, my mother's about to be a grandmother. My wife just told me this today. She told me that we were pregnant and I about lost it. Anyway, I'm going out on a limb here. I hope you will read this on your show. I don't know if you will or not. But if you do, just say, Jackie Store is going to be a grandma. And that will be enough for me. I'll make sure she listens this week. Thank you very much from the bottom of my heart. All right, here goes. Jackie Stower, in case you missed it, you're going to be a grandma this week. Well, not this week. You know what I mean. Anyway, you ought to know that being a grandma means from now on, your duty is to look at that child and say, He's way too skinny. Larry from Bowling Green, Kentucky. There's something about the way things get when it rains, even though it's sunshiny out. I was out for a bike ride, and it was hot, and the rain started coming down, even though it was sunny. It was just so beautiful, it made me stop and want to take a picture of it. The clouds were making weird shapes in the sky, and... Sean, I'm 69 years old, and my phone is not the newest kind of phone there is. My kids tell me it's old and it's junky. And during this serene moment of meditation, I held my phone up to the sky to take a picture of all the beauty that surrounded me. And a big drop of rain caused an electrical spark that shocked me in my phone. (laughs) My phone lit up with a big pop, and I dropped it, and I shattered it all over the ground. Thank God I didn't die. So, you can consider this a warning to all your listeners to never take pictures in the rain, even if it's sunshiny out, unless you want to be electrocuted until your face falls off. (laughs) All the best. All the best, Larry. Buck McGee, Wimberley, Texas. I am a fiddle player. I guess I'm just learning how to call myself that because I just learned how to play. My dad is teaching me how to play. He's an awesome musician, but he never did anything big with his music in life like people thought he would. He's just always kind of been the background kind of guy. He plays at church sometimes, and he plays with his friends sometimes, 
But the older he gets, the more I realize I want to learn how to do what he does. Dear Buck, thank you for telling me that. And may your fingers develop calluses on them so thick that all you got to do is touch them strings to make it wine. Phyllis Tanner, Waynesboro, Virginia. Sean, you got listeners in Virginia, and I'm one of them. Enjoyed listening to your shows on an, on an all-day drive to New York. Yes, the dreaded New York City. It was nice having you with us on the ride. Just thought I'd tell you that. Jackson McDaniel, Blue Ridge, Georgia. My wife thinks I'm a nerd. And most of the time, she's right. But last Tuesday, after I had told her a thousand times to make sure she gasses up her tank all the way because she's notorious for leaving it a quarter tank full, and after she ignored my advice, she found herself in traffic outside Atlanta during rush hour. She ran out of gas. It was a complete disaster. Five hours later, she came rolling home in a taxi. I had been wondering where on earth she was, and I told her I had tried calling her several times, but I never got an answer, and it turns out that she left her phone in our bathroom. (laughs) It was quite a day. It was quite a day, and even though it might be nerdy, I know from now on she will probably always keep her car tank full. At least that's what I hope. Anyway, I thought you'd like the story. Dear Jackson, I don't just like it. My tank runneth over. (laughs) Charlene Pickery, Norman, Oklahoma. You'd like my grandpa. You'd like him. He's a hardworking man who grew up on a hog farm. And he likes your show because he said it reminds him of the old days. Now, my grandpa don't give out compliments. Not even on the day of my mother's wedding when she asked him how she looked at her dress. And all he said was... Well, that dress looks very expensive. So, Sean, feel very honored that he likes your show. Dear Charlene, I am totally honored. Sal Walker, Goldfield, Nevada. Hi, Sean. I'm about 250 miles south of Carson City right now, writing you from Goldfield, Nevada. I miss my home in Hoover, Alabama. I miss it so bad it makes me sick, but I'm here for work and it's so different from the home I have known. I've been all over these past two years, and I'm just tired. I'm ready to be back home where I can get bold peanuts on the side of the road or go fishing somewhere that doesn't look like a sunburnt desert or see a little bit of greenery that I recognize. I have a wife who has traveled with me selflessly. Originally, she's from Arkansas, though she feels the same way I do about being back in a place that feels more like home. I took this job because it paid so well. And that's what we're trained to do, isn't it? To take a good job that pays good money and make a good living. But now I'm seeing that there are more important things than money in life. And I know that just sounds so cliche. You probably won't read this on the air. But if you do, my mother just passed last year. And I've learned a lot. It's put me in touch with everything I've forgotten about in my life. Everything. Mainly with the simple things. Anyway, I don't know even why I'm thanking you, but I finally decided to quit my job no matter how good the money is, and I'm going back home. I don't know what I'll do when I get there, and I don't care, because there are more important things in this world than money. Things like family. Things like friends. Anyway, I can't wait to go home. Thanks for the show. Your buddy, Sal. Dear Sal, 
going to tell you something that I've been waiting to tell somebody just about all my life. Come on back home, brother. We'll leave the light on for you. And that's letters from our listeners. We're going to have another tune here from the Wildman family, everybody. The Wildman. What you're about to hear played on a mandolin and a violin is Johann Sebastian Bach's Concerto for Two Violins in D minor, the third movement. Ladies and gentlemen, Eli Wildman and Elia Wildman.
pains me to say that summer is coming to an end. A beautiful end, no doubt about it, but it is an end. Altogether, ends make me sad. Even the ends of really good movies make me sad. Summer is punctuated by four specific things in my mind. The sounds of lawnmowers. You go everywhere and you hear a sound of a lawnmower in the distance and it, it, it does something to your body. It makes your, your nostril receptors start to smell grass. Even if you're in the center of an asphalt jungle, you smell grass clippings. And you remember what it was like to roll in that grass. Summer's punctuated by revival meetings. In the Southern Baptist tradition, the, the summer is nothing but an endless time of guilt and shame. That's what revival is. Revival is intended to, to, to make you remember that summer is a gift and you cannot enjoy a gift unless you feel so ashamed that you don't enjoy it. We don't believe in enjoying things too much. This is why whenever you see a Southern Baptist on vacation, you will always find them cleaning up people's paper plates. They will always be the one standing at the sink doing the dishes because to have a good time is it's against our religion. And so we hold revival meetings in the summertime to remind everybody that joy only lasts for the night, but hell comes in the morning. <laughs> summertime is a time of baseball. Baseball is what the summer is all about. It represents life. Life itself can be compared to a good baseball game. You have a hitter who stands at the plate and all he is fighting against is himself and a ball. Life is just every bit as pointless as a game of baseball sometimes. You are fighting against something that is so small and so fast that it almost don't even exist. And yet the entire centrality of your life seems to revolve around a tiny ball no bigger than a grapefruit. This is summertime and you can watch the boys and the men all get together and remember what it means to sit in a park. Life tends to fade away into the periphery and things that you thought mattered, things that do matter in life, things that are so important like jobs and money and, and, and where you're going to live and whether or not you feel guilty about having fun this summer because you're a Southern Baptist. Things like this don't matter in a ballpark. All of a sudden you trade it all in to sit with a man who you love and cherish or a friend who you feel close with and you begin to obsess over things that do not matter in the big scheme of life. Things like what pitches the, the catcher is calling. Things like whether or not that tall skinny man standing on that little mound pitching to the batter is throwing a split knuckle fastball or a four seamer or a Bugs Bunny ball or a dipsy doodle ball or my father's signature pitch. My father was a pitcher. He called it the wandering John. It was so slow that on the, trip to its, on the trip to home plate, it would take a stop in the dugout. It would get a drink of water and read the classified section. <laughs> Baseball. And then, to me, the epitome of any summer, the epitome of any summer and the most saddened thing I hate to see leave is tomatoes. 
homegrown tomatoes. Not those cardboard things you buy in the grocery store that taste like an amalgamation of cardboard and skunk fur. Tomatoes grown in a garden. Before they're picked, they have a, a, a very distinct aroma that you can smell when you get your, your nose close to that prickly stalk that they're growing on. You pluck one of these tomatoes from the vine. They're warm from the sun, and you take a bite just like you would an apple. No salt is required. No slicing is required. And the juice falls into your chin and on your shirt. And, and, and if you have not ruined your shirt when you're eating a tomato, you're not doing it right. Tomatoes, to me, that was summer. There used to be a vegetable stand up in town, right on the edge of town, and that was Miss Carolyn Jackson's tomatoes. Now, she sold her tomatoes every day of my childhood using what we call the honor system. The way Miss Carolyn Jackson would do, she'd set it all up on a little card table, a little card table with a vinyl top, the kind that women have been using play bridge and bunco and cribbage for years, even though they told their husbands that they were going off to, to Bible study. <laughs> she would set her tomatoes on this, this table in a little diamond shape. She would color coordinate them. Her tomatoes grew in all different kinds of colors. She had yellow ones and green ones with dark green stripes and purple ones. She had golden delicious. She had Cherokees. And she had a little Duke's mayonnaise jar empty that was filled with coins and dollars. The honor system is a legally binding system out in the country. Our people hold the honor system with reverence and respect. It is a sacrament among our people. People do not dare go against the honor system and just take tomatoes and place them into an old Windex bag and drive off. That is worse than killing your own grandparents by drowning them. <laughs> no, people, they go to this little jar even if they are bona fide serial killers. Even if they have robbed the houses on this street, they will not defy the honor system. They will take two tomatoes and they will pay for two tomatoes. Or they will take one bushel of okra and they will pay for one bushel of okra. And they might even put in a little bit extra. This was Carolyn Jackson's. Carolyn Jackson's honor system. Her tomatoes were world-renowned if you ask me. I could tell one of Miss Carolyn Jackson's tomatoes even if I were eating it blindfolded on the other side of the world amongst the greatest fare that any country could produce. They had a sweetness to them, coupled with just a little bit of acidity. They made the greatest tomato sandwiches, which is not the correct way to pronounce that particular item of southern interest. Tomato sandwich is, is not pronounced that way. The T is always silent, which would be pronounced tomato sandwich. If you're already from the deep sticks, the O is replaced with an E-R, Mater Sandwich. And if you are from a place so far away they got to pump sunshine to you, the W in Sandwich is silent, which would make it Mater Sandwich. A tomato sandwich, a Mater Sandwich, requires dedication to get it right. It requires simple ingredients that are unadulterated by modern trendy things like organic organic flaxseed mayonnaise. No, no, no. You need to make a, a tomato sandwich. Two slices of bunny bread, colonial bread, or sunbeam bread. Nothing whole grain here will do. You place these, these slices of soft bread on the counter and you smear them with one inch thick dollops 
of either Duke's mayonnaise or blue plate mayonnaise. Slice these tomatoes and slice these tomatoes to about the thickness of your thumb. Because you, you don't want to have thin little weak tomatoes here. You want thick slices. You place them onto that mayo and you, you push the sandwich slices together so hard that the tomatoes are threatening to slip out and fall on the floor. And you take these bites of this sandwich and it falls all over your clothes and it stains you with red, making you look like the crucified Christ. Oh, Miss Carolyn Jackson's tomatoes were beautiful things. Beautiful tomatoes. Beautiful tomatoes. It pains me that my cousin's children don't know much about the glories of tomatoes. You see, they know what they've been given from their early days. They know grocery store tomatoes. They live in the city. So this is what they eat. Their most, their most prized possessions in their lives are their phones and their iPads. And they have missed out on things like baseball. The only baseball they know is a game that they play on an app which had been downloaded from a Japanese app developer. And they play it with their thumbs and their fingers while they're on long-distance trips in the car. And the only thing they know about uh, the sound of a lawnmower going is the sound of the lawn man who comes through their little subdivision and mows the lawn. I wonder if losing these things and not being familiar with some of these things has, has done our children a disservice and made them, made them feel a little less confident than we did. Because after all, when you go out into the world and you're not used to being on, on grass in your bare feet and you're not used to to playing an actual game of baseball with a ball and a bat and cleats and running until you're sweaty. And you're not used to going to horribly long revival meetings. I've starved to death in many revival meetings. When you're not used to these things, you start to wonder about, about who you are. You start to feel a little less confident. My cousin's child asked me, he said, Sean... There's a girl in my class, there's a girl in my class, seventh grade, and I really want her to notice me. And I can't ask my dad about it because my dad's a nerd. <laughs> and I really want her to think that I'm cool. What do I do? I'm going to be truthful with you, I never did know how to be cool. I never did. Coolness. My generation hinged on a few different things. Uh, the, the, the list of criteria for coolness was startlingly brief. There were only a few things that mattered. One, did you have access to, without administrative or parental supervision, a transistor radio or a Walkman? Two, did you engage in wearing or associate with any societal rejects who did wear khaki pants. This was all that, this was all that mattered now. As fate would have it, my mother believed in khaki pants. 
She believed in pressing these these khaki pants with an iron and starch spray, so much starch that she would crease them right down the center of the pant legs so sharply that they could slice an average-sized kiwi. (laughs) She believed in khaki pants, and more than that, even worse, and I hate to even mention this, I wouldn't even wish what I'm about to tell you on my worst enemy. My mother believed in purchasing these khaki pants from Sears. I was a chubby child. I was very chubby. I was like many of the members of the Dietrich gene pool. I got very, very chubby before I shot straight up. And then I, I grew one so fast one summer that the tendons in, behind my knees did not grow along with my bones. And so they did not stretch all the way and my legs walked kind of bent-like. I, I looked like there was something shoved up in an orifice of my body. And I probably shouldn't talk about. And to make everything, to make everything just one more degree, one more degree humiliating, I wore husky pants. This was a brand name, purchased at Sears. They had them located in the back of the clothing section in the boys' department, just right next to the dressing rooms to the left of the gas chambers and the electric chair. My mother would march me back to get these pants and try them on, and she would make me go into these dressing rooms and put these pants on and button them up, and then she would look at me, and she would make me lift up my shirt, exposing my little white belly. And she would tug on my waistline, and she would say something like, Huh, these must run a few sizes too small. (laughs) It It is an embarrassing position to be in. She would make me go grab a bigger size. We'd go home, and she would proceed to spend an hour ironing this one pair of pants so that they were sharp enough and crisp enough to stand up on their own. Now, you can imagine how I must have looked walking through the halls of this school, looking like I did. If ever I went into the boys' bathroom and I caught a glimpse of myself in the mirror, I couldn't help but notice that I looked like a Baptist preacher about to give the blessing over the food at the county fair. I looked ridiculous. And my mother insisted that I tuck in my button-down shirts to thereby, to thereby accentuate the size of my waist. My little face was just puffy, and I had freckles. I had so many freckles, it was ridiculous. I had curly red hair, not just red hair, curly red hair. Yes, this is, this is what it meant to be uncool. And there was this girl I really liked. I really, really liked her. I won't tell you her name, but she was beautiful. She had a, she always wore her hair in a ponytail. She had a blonde mop of hair and two little crystal blue eyes. She had milky white skin. She was lovely. She was soft-spoken, and she was one of the cool kids. Now, we used to get together during my generation, and we used to go to these places called skating rinks. Now, a skating rink, for those of you who are a little bit too young to know about it, is a giant warehouse-sized place with a smooth concrete floor right in the center, surrounded by, by barriers. And in this place, we would put on shoes with wheels attached to the bottom called roller skates, and we would try very hard to give each other a concussion. 
This was the kind of room that smelled like popcorn and body odor. And there was a DJ in the corner who stood by an LP record player, and he would, he would play songs that our parents weren't quite sure about. And at the, at the coup de grace of this little, this little adolescent ritual was the moment in, of the night called couple skating. This is when a lovely young girl and a lovely young boy would hold hands and skate forward. And they would go in rhythm with the music, which was usually something like Love Train or Tico Tico or Neil Diamond's anthem to to Lost Love, Love on the Rocks Ain't No Big Surprise. (laughs) And we would skate forward in circles together. If you were one of the cool kids, you were out there on that skate rink with some lovely young woman. But if you were one of the uncool kids, you were off in the periphery watching these couples skate and you were discussing the finer points of Star Trek. (laughs) Hands tucked firmly in your khaki pants. I wanted this girl to notice me. I asked my, my uncle about it. I asked him how I could get this girl to notice me. He said, I have discovered in all my days there's only one way to get a girl to notice you. Buy her a whiskey sour. <laughs> so I left his RV and I went to my mother and I asked my mother for advice, figuring that she had a little more feminine sensibility than my dear, dear Uncle John, who, who only believed in whiskey sours. My mother said, give a gift to her and be yourself. If there's one thing you can be, it's yourself. Be yourself because you're the only one who can do it. Well, this is a lot harder than it sounds. It was hard for people in my generation. It's hard for kids in this generation. There's nothing easy about being yourself People in this world try to get you to be anything but yourself. They try to get you to act like somebody else, to dress like somebody else, to like the things all everybody else likes instead of the things that you like. They try to get you to believe like everybody else. My mother seemed to know this. And so I showed up to the skate rink. My mom dropped me off with one of my friends. We went to the bathroom. This is our first door of business. And in the bathroom, my friend stood guard while I changed out of my khaki husky pants and into a pair of jeans. And much to my surprise, my mother must have gotten to these jeans before I did because there were iron creases (laughs) going down the front. I put on my roller skates and I walked out among the kids who were all my age in this dimly lit room kind of smelled like mildew and, and, and children sweating. And I, I saw her in the corner. She was lovely. Never forget it. Wearing an orange blouse with frills on the sleeves and her hair, her shock of blonde hair pulled back. And I saw her and my heart went weak. And I remembered what my mother had said. Give a gift. Be yourself. Seems like such a cliche thing to say. 
now that I say it out loud, but it really did mean something to me back then. I swallowed my pride and I thought to myself, you know, you know, I have something that all chubby kids have. I'm funny. Chubby, chubby boys have an advantage in this department, in the comedy department. We're funny. In fact, we don't even have to try to be funny because we have an abundance of chubbiness particles in our blood. And that means no matter what we say, it comes off as funny. In fact, a kid like me, for instance, could just recite the Apostles' Creed and it would bring the house down. My buddy Tyler was even chubbier than I was. He could read the phone book and make you laugh until you died. And I thought to myself, by God, I'm funny. I know I'm funny. I can do this. And I saw her against that sewed machine. She was standing next to, to two boys who were extremely cool. They were so cool that their emotions never showed on their face. You could never tell whether they were happy or sad. They were indifferent to everything. They were cool. And I rolled right up to her. And in my hand, in my hand, I had a, a Winn-Dixie bag of homegrown tomatoes from Miss Carolyn Jackson's house. There are only three of them. One purple, one yellow, one green. And I handed them to her and she said, what's this? She looked at me and she, she didn't really know what to do. Cool kids don't know what to do when they're given tomatoes. And then I decided to go for the gold. I said, I said, do you believe in love at first sight or do I need to walk by you again? And she laughed. She laughed. God bless her. She laughed. And so I decided, I decided to go for, go for two. I said, I don't want to ask you to couple skate with me, but would you be so kind as to take my hand and hold it while I go out there and skate by myself? <laughs> and she laughed again. And we held hands and we couple skated in a big circle to the song Endless Love. It was one of the greatest nights of my adolescence. And after it was all said and done, we went out to the curb and we waited for our mamas. And she sat beside me. It was better than cool. I felt, I felt accepted. And I felt alive. And I'd forgotten all about the crease in my jeans. <laughs> and she opened up that little bag of Winn-Dixie tomatoes, a uh, Winn-Dixie bag full of heirloom tomatoes from Miss Jackson's house. She handed me one. She said, nobody's ever brought me tomatoes before. Her mother came to pick her up. She got in and she left. And I looked up at the night sky and I thought to myself, my brilliant, brilliant mother, she told me to be myself. And when she drove to the curb to get me that night, I crawled in and I had a smile on my face that could have lit up the Empire State Building. She said, well, how did it go? I said, it went, it went good. It went good. 
She said, well, my, my, she must have liked the tomatoes. Yes, I guess she did. I guess she did. Be yourself. You're the only one who can. I don't know how else to put it. That's all for me. I appreciate you having me here tonight. It's been a great place. Thanks for listening to Sean of the South. I've been your host today, Sean Dietrich, and it has been a bona fide pleasure, if I do say so myself. Hope you join us next week, and the week after that, if you ain't got nothing going on. The music you heard behind me today was the Wildman's magical music made by Eli and Elia, brother and sister, fiddle and mandolin. These guys aren't just good, they're Blue Ridge Music Festival good. These guys have broad interests and adventurous spirits that come through in their playing styles. They'll succeed in any kind of music they set their minds to because they are that skilled. They practice traditional music, classical music, and any other kind of music you can think of. Do yourself a favor and check them out at thewildmans.net. While you're there, drop them a line and make sure you pick up one of their albums like Wandering Thoughts. It's a good one. Find anything more about what I do, you can visit SeanOfTheSouthShow.com and there you'll find all our shows and archives and you can drop us a line and I hope you decide to drop us a line because I love to hear stuff from my friends. Tell me about your birthday announcements, wedding announcements, church potlucks, ice cream socials, grandparents' birthdays, and bar mitzvahs, and anything else you can think of because I love to hear from my friends. And speaking of friends, friends, I never met a man that I didn't like, but I've met plenty that I couldn't stand. Adiós. Adiós.